Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Have you ever found yourself wondering, what else can I listen to on the Osiris Network? Here's another great podcast you can check out. Hey, what's up? This is Mike Fenoya, host of Amigos Podcast here on the Osiris Network. What is Amigos Podcast? Well, I am a stand-up comedian, writer for True TV's Impractical Jokers, and a music freak. So I invite my pals to come talk music, comedy, and everything in between. So uh, if you want to come hang, we'd love to have you. Thank you. What's up, everybody? 
This is the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 155. Thanks for joining. We are going to get into a discussion with Scotty B of Jambase about spring 1994, 25 years later. I know all spring people have been listening back to these shows, and we're going to try to break them down and look at a few shows in detail. So we'll get into that in a few minutes. First, some fish news. Between Me and My Mind is going to be showing in select theaters on July 17th. Apparently, there'll be 400 theaters where this will be showing. You can go to betweenmeandmymind.com for updates. And I uh, hope everyone gets to check it out. I got to see it last month in New York, and I got to say, it was a really you know, authentic, intimate, funny, touching look at, at Trey and, and some really cool fish stuff as well. So hopefully people are able to check that out. Speaking of fish, I guess that's all we do. Um, The band's in rehearsal for the summer. Mike just posted a a few videos to his Instagram feed, so they are underway. So in between, summer tour kicks off in about 26 days once this episode comes out. In between that, there's a June 1st show um, for Mike Gordon at Red Rocks, and then there's four tab shows in Florida and Atlanta. You can see those dates at at fish.com slash tours. And then summer tour kicks off on June 11th. Um, in St. Louis. So it's going to be an awesome summer tour. There's a lot of, a lot of shows. They're hitting some places they've never hit before. There's some, there's some first timers and some old timers. So it's going to be cool. We're psyched. We're going to bring you quick hits as we always do. I think people are enjoying those. So if you're interested in covering any of the shows, please reach out to us on, on Twitter or Facebook or, or shoot us an email, helpingfriendlypodcast at gmail.com. One cool thing, uh, Fenway Park is doing a fish night um, June 24th ahead of the fish shows there on July 5th and 6th. Their, uh, their little promo for it says, Won't You Step Into Fenway? So good job on the copy there, whoever's whoever's uh, doing that. I assume there's some fan there's some fans working there who are involved. So that's pretty cool. Um, people who are there, send us some photos and you know let us know how it is because that sounds pretty cool. So I want to give you one quick update about Osiris. Um, if you are excited about what we're up to with Osiris and you want to help, us grow and help us build what we're trying to build, you can actually invest in Osiris. So we're not soliciting donations. We launched an equity crowdfunding campaign through a platform called Seed Invest. And basically, since the Jobs Act, uh, this piece of legislation was passed in 2012, investments in private companies are open to people beyond just accredited investors. So what we're doing is we're raising money through investment, which means that investors actually buy a piece of the company and, um, you know, can help Osiris grow. So we just passed a big milestone, but we have a lot more to go over the next three weeks or so. So if you want to be part of it and check it out, go to seedinvest.com slash osiris.media and check it out. I'll put that in the show notes as well. We're really excited about it. And, uh, you know, thanks for everyone, everyone's support so far. All right. So for this episode, we're going to dive into a conversation with Scott Bernstein from Jambase. As I think most people know, Jambase is a media partner of Osiris. Jambase is you know, the premier place for online news, tour dates, and more. Jambase.com, of course. Scotty B is one of the best. He covers music in our scene and beyond like nobody else. He knows more, almost, you know, more about fish than almost anyone I know, but also just about music in general. And we're going to try to highlight that with three or four shows marking how the band progressed over the course of the tour. But, um, you know, it's going to be hard to do it justice because as, as you'll hear, You'll hear the team talk about it is a ridiculous tour with with so much going on. So we're going to jump into it. Thanks for listening to this little intro and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have not, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify 
or Google Play or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, it really helps us with discovery and with you know getting the word out about what we're up to. So we'd appreciate it very much, and uh, we appreciate you listening. So let's jump into this conversation with Scotty B. Thanks. All right. Hey, gang. It's Matt here. I am here with our own Jonathan. Jonathan, how's it going tonight? Pretty great. And uh, we have with us special guest Scott Bernstein. I think most of you know Scotty from uh, Yemblog as well as from Jambase. Scott, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing excellent. Glad to be on. Excellent. And thanks for coming back on as uh, as a guest. Um, we're going to talk about uh, spring 1994. And as we mentioned in the intro, we want to cover uh, 1994 on its 25th anniversary, kind of one tour at a time by looking at a couple of key shows from each tour. We're going to start out with the first tour of the year, spring 1994. And um, just for context, um, maybe Scotty, because I know you uh, saw your first show on this tour. It's going to be one of the shows that we talk about tonight. Maybe set up for us a little bit um, about like where Fish was uh, in, in their career and kind of what was going on leading into this tour absolutely um it was rare that the band had taken off the whole fall the previous fall into in 1993 because they spent that time in los angeles recording hoist um so fish hadn't played since the the summer uh since since august and august 1993 was one of the greatest months in fish history. Uh, they were really hitting their stride. Uh, they had a very interesting strategy. They booked themselves into amphitheaters that they knew they wouldn't be able to sell out, but they were looking at the long picture and realized that they needed experience playing in venues that big. And it wound up great for them because they quickly were able to fill those venues within a few years. And people like Chris Kuroda had experience lighting venues such as that instead of 6,000, 7,000 person venues. Um, and you add that to the experience that they had in 1992 when they were in the same rooms opening for Santana or being part of the Horde Festival. And um, so you have April uh, 1994 starting. You have a whole batch of new songs. Songs. Unlike any other Fish album up to that point, all of the material from Hoist hadn't been heard except for uh, Sample in a Jar, I believe. And uh, so this this was, they reconfigured their repertoire. They played the hell out of those songs as any band with lots of new material would want to. Um, but coming into the tour, fans weren't sure how exactly those songs would fit. And I'm sure the band wasn't exactly either. And uh, after taking that fall off, Fish went hard in, in 1994. And the spring tour lasted from April 4th until uh, May 29th. They took a very short period of time off and then were right back at it for a summer tour that lasted from the beginning of June um, all, all the way through the middle of, of July. So uh, it was the longest. It, it, uh, looking back, it's certainly spring tour has disappeared. Um 
Have there really been any U.S. spring tours since? I mean, the island tour, um, but... But besides that, they they're or Hampton. Uh, they this is a period of time, especially spring, where fish stopped touring during that time. But they sure went out with a bang in 1994 with this spring tour that we're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, so 45 shows in two months, which is like pretty insane by any measure. Um, you know, particularly the way that they tour today, um, that's almost as many, sh- about the same am- amount of shows that they play in an entire year now. They did in two months, and this is the first of three tours, uh, three long tours throughout the year. Um, and Scott, as you mentioned, um, they're touring on Hoist. Um, we've talked on, on the past uh, about how album release years are sometimes different because they're skewing a little bit more towards the material for that album, um, which we'll see a lot in these tours. Um, But as opposed to some of the other years where sometimes that's a detriment to the improv or the sound of the band, um, I think we'd probably all agree that it was a sort of a propellant on this tour. Well, you know, they, they did play the New Year's run in 93, which was straight out of the recording studio. They blew up the Downward Disease jam, although nobody really knew what it was. And what I think is also notable about that is that that was, of course it was taped, but I think it was uh, an FM broadcast because we had great tapes of it in heavy circulation almost immediately. And so I was, I had not yet seen Fish, but I was a moderate fan of the band at the time. I was checking them out. They were on my radar. We were listening to tapes and we got that tape. We played the hell out of it uh, before. I, I'm pretty sure before even this tour happened, the spring tour happened, we were listening to that New Year's tape and it was blowing our minds. And so they were revved up hard. And I'm sure they were just as anxious to play shows as the fans who had been seeing them were anxious to see them again by the time they got out there. Yeah, so, th- so that's a good point. I mean, Hoist comes out March 29th, 1994. So um, both of you guys had not seen the band at this point heading into, I know, Jonathan, you had a, like a kind of a near miss with seeing Scott, you did wind up seeing on this, <laughs> on this tour. What's kind of like, were you guys both all in on listening to Hoist, just kind of like studying the new material coming into the shows or, or how does that kind of play out for you at this point? Yeah, I was, uh, when, I think Rift was the first one that they released that I was in on when it came out. Um, I think maybe Picture of Nectar I heard sometime after, but I got Rift right when it came out. And then same with Hoist. I was ready for it. I bought it when it came out. I was I loved it. I was excited about it. It was a little bit different, but not. It still sounded like the fish band that I had never seen live. <laughs> so I was, you know, still pretty jazzed and excited about it. And yeah, I almost saw them at the Patriot Center on this tour. Uh, I had a ticket. I sold, I, but I had basically no money. And I, the band announced a show in DC and I actually sold my ticket to a friend, to my buddy, Joel. Hey, Joel. And, um, and took that money. I, I actually, I met him in the Patriot Center parking lot in, um, in what is it? If March, sold in my ticket, walked over to the box office, bought a ticket for the band at uh, Lincoln Theater in D.C., and I went to see that show the same week instead. Scott, how about you? Were you kind of tearing into Hoist uh, after it came out? 
Absolutely. Um, I was uh, visiting my grandparents in uh, Florida during the time. I remember going to the Peaches uh, in Plantation, Florida, and being very excited to uh, pick up Hoist. It was, for me, the first album that came out after I started listening to the band. Um, Definitely took me time to get into the material, um, but... uh, was definitely familiar with it going into my first show, which was April 15th, 1994. Had you been listening to tapes as well up to that point before your first show? Yes. Um, I, I would say uh, studio albums from August 93 through probably November. Um, November, I started gathering a tape collection. I would say by February or March, um, I was up to maybe 50 tapes and was uh, trying to get at, at learn as much as quickly about this band as I as I possibly could. Nice. So one of the things that kind of like in the grand scheme of things, when we look back at Hoist, a lot of people talk about it's it's kind of a different sounding album. It's got very slick production. Um, I believe the only album that they made on the West Coast. So it's got a lot of L.A. influence, a lot of guests, uh, Tower Power horns and um, and backup vocals and things like that. So and, I, and what I understand is that a lot of fans at the time who had been seeing them for a while since, you know, maybe the late 80s or early 90s were kind of turned off by the songs and the production and things like that. You guys coming in as newer fans, did you have that same reaction um, or was it just kind of all um, interesting to you because the band was so new to you? Uh, I found it fascinating to watch as a newbie all of these older fans freaking out about uh, the Down With Disease video and the material found on the new album. Um, But it almost seemed to me like these people were bagging on the material before they even heard it, Um, Mm. which makes sense a lot more now, knowing the Fish (laughs) fan base, (laughs) than it did at the time when I was very confused. Um, So I kind of watched from the sidelines. In, In fact, with uh, hoist uh, w- with the anniversary when it came up people were saying oh I remember the hubbub that was made and I forgot and then I was like oh yeah no no people were definitely very worried that this was going to be the touch of gray moment and worse than touch of gray which actually didn't turn out that terrible for the dead is what happened with the spin doctors who were became a one-hit wonder or a two-hit wonder and kind of went back on their um, changing up the set list every night in improvisation. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Spin Doctors because I was about to throw that out there because yeah, that was my impression personally was this is a band that seems to every record with, up to that point was already different. So it didn't shock me that it was different. And uh, although, and did I like it? I think I, I did like it. Uh, but I saw the other people who were who were opposed and, uh, you know, when the, as the tour happened and people were like, oh, man, they keep playing these songs and stuff like that. And um, it, it's honestly, it's just the same as every time an, a Fish album comes out. You get sure. the exact same thing, um, which is it's at this point, it's just hilarious uh, to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the Spin Doctors is a perfect analogy and fear that people had because they're a band that seemed to have promise to some of us in that time when they first came out and that 
promise very quickly faded. It's actually an interesting point that like right around the same time, the three bands with Princeton roots um, all had kind of had a swing at the big time. Uh, Blues Traveler kind of made it happen and had some degree of longevity. Uh, Spin Doctors, as you mentioned, sort of one or at least one album hit wonder. There was a couple of hit songs on that and Fish tried, but they didn't really stick, but they wound up being the band with kind of the most staying power. Absolutely. Blues Traveler uh, managed to sort of sustain some sort of blend of who they were and who the market wanted them to be for a good while. And uh, yeah, Spin Doctors kind of fizzled out uh, despite great talent. And yeah, and we still have Fish. So let's get into to talking about the shows here. The first show that we're going to talk about, um, as we alluded to earlier, is uh, Scott's first show, April 15th, 1994, at the Beacon Theater. This was uh, the third night of a three-night run, and uh, Fish had had a, a nice history in New York um, coming into this, but this was, I believe, their first time playing the Beacon Theater. A- absolutely, um, which is pretty crazy, considering that by the end of the year, they'd be playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Scott, tell us a little bit about, um, how you came to go to this show and, um, a little bit of what the experience was like. Well, as we discussed, you know, I, I got into fish the summer of 1993 and, uh, there was no fall tour. Uh, the closest show during the new year's run was in new Haven. I was 16 years old. New Haven was two and a half hours away. Just was not in the cards for me. They announced a spring tour. It was three nights at the beacon. I live an hour South of New York city. I was going to all three nights. Then I was 16. I discussed with my parents the plan to see all three nights, and they reminded me that the first two nights were school nights. Um, <laughs> so, so all I could do was do the third night. Um, my mom graciously bought tickets for me while I was in gym class, and uh, I got seats in the back of the orchestra, and um, I just I, I knew that that fish was not a typical band that I was going to have a different relationship with this band than I would with other bands and was just so absolutely excited to go to that show. Um, There was a long story involving that I got in trouble at school the day of, uh, of the show. Uh, My parents told me I couldn't go to the show. They saw the look in my face when they told me that and couldn't keep couldn't keep the punishment that they had just dished out. <laughs> oh, man. And in all the hubbub, I went with my friends on the train. I left the tickets at home. Oh, my parents no. then took, I, call, I got off at the first stop, uh, called my parents. They brought the tickets to the, to the train station. It was, I was only delayed an hour. Um, went to Central Park and hung out and, uh, then probably about an hour before the show, headed over to the Beacon, saw all sorts of this this small lot scene that was so cool. I saw a uh, person with a sign that said, punch you in the eye, and I was unfamiliar with the song, and I was really confused by that sign. <laughs> and... Um, and headed in, and friends of mine had seats in the 10th row. No one was checking my tickets, so I just went and sat with them. And uh, and then Llama began, and within four notes, I was like, this is the best shit ever, and I want to see this band as much as I possibly can moving forward. Nice, nice. So this... Um 
this show, it's it's interesting when I look at the set list, it's it has a very interesting set list even by 1994 standards, which is like, you know, a lot different than what they would do starting a couple years later. I feel like maybe they were a little bit more trying to, to figure out placements of, of certain songs. But, um, you know, you've got Harry Hood is the fourth song in the first set, which is pretty wild. Um, and then a, a second set that begins with Maze. Um, energetic throughout um and and we had a kind of a special surprise in the second set but um jonathan when you i know you weren't there when you listen back to this show what's your first impression I, well further to the the unusual set list layout down with disease close the first set that's that's wild now um but yeah I, there's a beautiful harry hood that i come out of paul and silas and I absolutely love that. It's beautiful. I want to give a secondary shout out to Scott's mom for getting those tickets for him. Um, that <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. We should all have we should all have moms so great. Um, yeah, it, this is a great show. I, I got I got this on uh, Dat from somebody years ago, and I just uh, listened to it endlessly. Um, and I, I I wish, and I never got to see I Want to Be Like You, and that is, of all the things on this, other than, like, the horns, which, I, spoiler, there's horns, um, That that's the thing I think I most want from this show in my life. Is that weird? No, I mean, uh, I've never seen Bike, um, yeah. and I would really love to see Bike. I'll trade you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if only it worked that way. Right. So the the, uh, the surprise that I alluded to a second ago is that the giant country horns uh, show up for the second half of uh, the second set. Um, Scott, was there any kind of inkling that this is something that might happen? Or was it compl- a complete surprise when they came out? Uh, there was definitely some commotion and uh, some a riser set up at set break behind the band. Um, I would imagine if I was more familiar with them, I would have realized that it was four horns, but I knew something special was going on. And then they started Susie Greenberg, and in the right before the chorus comes in, the giant country horns come marching out and take this spot on the riser that had been set up and are in place just in time to nail...
I was familiar enough to know that this was an extremely rare thing. Um, I knew that they had done that one tour with them. Uh, Fish only sold a couple of posters through their Fish Update newsletters. And so I bought a poster for that uh, tour, that 1991 tour, um, and had a tape of uh, Park from Parksville, uh, Arrowhead Ranch. Um, So it was great. And one of the crazier parts of my first show is all the songs that I saw that either I've yet to see again or it took me years to see again. Paul and Silas, uh, I I think I saw it. uh, I think it took me till 99 to see it again. Um, The Landlady, I still haven't seen a second time. Uh, Alumni Blues, I saw for a second time in 1999. Never seen I Want to Be Like You Again. Uh, Megillah, it took me until 2000 to see a second time. So it's all these gaps. If you look at my stats uh, just from those first shows, and I still, you know, I, they, they've started playing Landlady again, and I'd be really excited to see it. But um, as a first show, it was just absolutely perfect for me. You had the special moments of the horns. You had um, Bouncing Around the Room, which as a noob, I was so happy to see. (laughs) Down with Disease, the new single. If I could, the beautiful song from the new album. Maze, which was Rift, was one of the first albums that I had. Uh, so it really was just a, uh, a a perfect show for a first show for me. It's a really hot maze. I just want to jump on that bit, but definitely, I had, I had a couple questions for you. But first, a note: the I had the same problem with gaps after my first show in fall of '94. There are so many sh- songs I didn't see again for five years. Hydrogen, I didn't see again until the end of 99, wow. you know, like crazy things like that. So, and uh, yeah, still looking for a landlady. Um, was this, you were 16, was this your first, this is your first fish show, was this your first concert, uh, um, like self-selected concert or... No, I, I uh, in 1984, I saw the Jackson Victory Tour um, at oh, Giant wow. Stadium. In 1985, I saw a Born in the USA Tour. Um, I saw the Hysteria Def Leppard Tour in 89. And then I would say in, in about 91 or 92, uh, oh, actually throw in R.E.M. Green, my sister. I was 11 years old. My sister took me to MSG with her to cool. see um, that tour. But um, I was really into... Um, alternative music as it was called at the time in like 91 and 92 um and 93 so it's seen a number of concerts i would say this was probably 20 and uh so so i i was lucky to have seen a number of concerts but this was uh i outside of seeing blues traveler on new year's eve a few months prior uh my first jam scene concert okay so you had a you had a pretty good perspective on live music uh that was about to well was here probably completely altered absolutely yeah. it was unlike anything i had experienced the vibe the energy the um unexpected nature of the horns coming out and everything it was just uh unlike anything i'd ever witnessed and i knew that this band was not going to be playing theaters for much longer. So looking at the, at the set list again, um, do you guys think that, you know, the sort of formation, the songs that they picked um, fitting a lot of, 
maybe second set kind of stuff into the first set was influenced by, you know, um, putting the horns into the second set. Do you think maybe they're trying to play almost like a condensed show and then a show with the horns? I do think... I think very much so. Um, we know at this time, this was the era of Trey spending hours the night before thinking up the set list. Um, and obviously some changes happened on the fly, but um, I, I do think that's why you've got the disease. You've got the hood in the, in the first set. I, I do think that they um, got to some of those big guns earlier than usual. And when Fish announced in December of 94 that the Horns were going to join them for portions of two shows in California, I remember lots of people complaining on Rec Music Fish because set lists with the Horns were predictable. And it's just crazy to think, well, poor you getting to see McGillow with the horns and <laughs> right. Susie. And, but uh, there were probably five or six shows with the horns in 94. And little did we know that that would really be it for the giant country horns. Yeah, it's funny. Now, nowadays, people would say, hey, I, I didn't pay to see a tab show. I paid for a fish show. What's, what's going right. on here, right? <laughs> uh, I, I just I flipped back because you know, I went through this entire tour in my fish companion and I flipped back to the first night at the beacon and realized they played fee into a train. God, what, what would we do if they would play us an a train at uh, MSG? Uh, uh, but also yeah. the other thing from, I want to mention from this book is that when I was prepping for this episode, I turned the page to four fifteen ninety four, and there's a long review. I thought, Oh, well I'll read what this guy has to say. And then it's Scott Bernstein's review right there. So, <laughs> and I also suggest if you if you um, search Fish Beacon Theater on Google, um, I I tell my whole story of that night involving getting trouble at school, the the train ride, and the one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that this was the first night that the crowd provided the Wilson chant in Wilson. Um, up until right. that point, um, Trey had been singing it. Uh, at the Beacon Theater, people, uh, I, I, my experience is my friend that I went to the show with, this guy Brent, just started yelling Wilson at the band. I was unfamiliar with the song. I didn't know what was going on. I started yelling Wilson at the band. Next thing you knew, more and more people were, were doing it. And, uh, re- my story holds that that was the start of the Wilson chant and no one has been able to come up with audio of a time before that, that the pro- the crowd provided the Wilson chant. Well, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what, what about other highlights from the show? I mean, for me, the hood really stuck out. Uh, the, it was a fantastic hood. Those fiery 94 versions that um, they don't skew as much towards the delicate side as they do towards the just soaring peaks from Trey.
Um, I already, I also got really into the It's Ice and Down With Disease uh, closer to set one. Um, Down With Disease, of course, we, you know, today we love the jams, um, but it's really cool to hear these succinct versions. Anything else that stuck out for you guys? How about Jonathan? Uh, I mentioned it before that May is, is actually, um, it, it's, it's my favorite thing. I think other than the horns, that's where I go. I'll just say that I think we've hit upon everything, but I will say this. I thought it was so cool after the horns vacated the stage. It's just the four members of fish left. They come to the lip of the stage and sing Amazing Grace, I'm pretty sure, without microphones. And uh, I didn't even know they did such things like that. Um, It was such a contrast to what I had just experienced. And, like, I just left with my face completely melted after that. And it was a nice thing to go out on. Face on the floor, head in the clouds. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. So, all right, let's um, let's jump ahead a couple of weeks to the middle of the tour. And this is a show that really everybody should know. In fact, we probably could have dedicated an entire episode just to the second set of this show. Uh, and that, of course, is May 7th, 1994 at the Bomb Factory in Dallas, Never Texas. heard of it. It's completely unfamiliar to me until <laughs> you guys suggested we do it. I, I just... <laughs> I had so, to Google it, and then I went, had to go to Yahoo, and then uh, it finally found some information on this concert. It, it's not, yeah, it's uh, it's a little obscure. Um, now, <laughs> if you're listening to this right now and you've never heard the second set of the Bomb Factory show, stop our podcast. Go listen to this uh, this set. It's uh, of course on uh, audience tape. Re-listen uh, lots of places, but it is was also one of the uh, first uh, live fish uh, that was released in in the mics. Uh, Mike's selections set that came out um, notable for the second set, which has the first tweezer fest ever, almost an entire set of tweezer going in and out of other things um, for me coming into the band uh, a little bit later, starting in about 1999. This was one of the shows that people told me about first. And this, this was probably one of the first five to 10 shows that I ever listened to. It, it had that, you know, legendary status um, by that point. You guys kind of listening at the time uh, and, and sort of contemporary listeners, did this have that kind of reaction? And, or maybe the, the right question is, how fast did word spread and the tape spread of um, how legendary this show was? Um, Scott, what, can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, at, by this point, I had uh, invested in a modem and was uh, on this newfangled thing called the internet uh, using a news group called Rec Music Fish. So I was looking at the set list as they came in, and I remember seeing the one for the Bomb Factory and there was just all sorts of crazy notations on it. Um, people had a really hard time putting into words at first what they played that night. I, there was something called GWA that was in the set list at first. Um, digital delay loop jam was uh, people had all sorts of fascinating names for what they were calling that part of the jam. And just the set list alone was like, what the hell happened there? And uh, thankfully, I'm not sure how the tape got out, 
but a soundboard of the second set very quickly was shared amongst the whole Rec Music Fish community. There was a tape tree that had got the tape into hundreds of people's hands, uh, I, I believe within a month after the show. Um, so I got to hear it. And um, I, I will say this, um, the Bomb Factory and some of the top-level 1994 shows kind of ruined summer 95 for me (laughs) and i say that because i was looking for stuff like the tweezer fest and for the quick moves between jam spaces and crazy jams on songs like cannonball and sweet emotion and what we got in the summer of 1995 were 30 minute runaway gyms and 60 minute tweezers that only had a little uh i think my generation jam in it um that was real spacey and ambient and it's stuff that now i love and i'm like what the hell was i thinking but i was 17 or 18 years old at the time and was looking for stuff like the tweezer fest where they would move from one crazy awesome jam section to another quickly and then jam on cannonball and throw a uh, purple rain in the middle of it and jam on hold your head up um so it's you know it's not something i'm proud of because i wish i would have enjoyed <laughs> those shows that i saw the summer of 95 more in the moment that i did but yeah, i was listening to the bomb factory tape and so my expectations were ridiculously out of whack yeah expectations will get you every time yeah especially with this band but yeah i was uh not quite as hooked in so i think it was probably it was probably within the week though because we had a little circle of friends and somebody invariably was like check this out this they just played this show and they i'm holding up my hand like i'm holding up a tape but i didn't hear the tape for probably a few months um i was well beyond the actual tape tree but i we heard it by summer sometime Mm. um and yeah we were kind of blown away by it it was one of those tapes that you know pretty quickly everybody had to have so as soon as one of us got it we all got it and you'd wear it out in your tape deck and then go back to whoever got it first and get it again um (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it it's a hell of a thing um and you know when i put this show on now i always actually go to the first set first and play the split open and melt and then i play the tweezer fest because really, I think that um, split open and melt is like the, uh, it's the it's the foreshadowing. It just gives you an idea of that they're really gonna rip, and uh, and they do on that, and then yeah, this show just goes.
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So, yeah, Matt, you got this. When did you get this? Like before you saw the band in '99 or whatever? Or so I, I definitely got it before the ba- I saw the band because I was, you know, listening to them for close to four years before I actually got to see them. Um, I got this when it came out as the live fish uh, okay. release. Um, I, 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 when that series started to come out, I was so new into fish. I bought nearly every one of them, um, knowing that these were recommended shows, but I had heard about the bomb factory. And so when it came out, I was like, I've got to make sure I get this one. Yeah. And that and, was and, number and 18. It. Is it? Sorry. Okay. That, yeah. It was number 18. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like when I look back on this show, uh, similar to some of the jams in, in August of 93, things like the Murat Gin, it's a, like a turning point for the band because I don't know that they had done anything like this before, which we've, we've seen these long, epic, flowy sets that, um, you know, whether it's a long tweezer or just segues, uh, you know, really great flow from one song to another long jams these are things that we look forward to now and that they've done a lot but i can't think of many examples before this show where they had this type of flow throughout the entire set and um scott as you shared on on jam based on the anniversary of this show um trey's comment i I think a couple days later that you know they just out of nowhere kind of let the last hour of the show kind of go and i don't know that they had had done that before i mean is that is that an accurate statement or was there, was there kind of a, um, uh, an example of this happening, you know, maybe earlier in 93? I mean, I, I think you're, you're, you're definitely right. I mean, the only thing that really comes to mind is, uh, eight thirteen and eight fourteen ninety ninety three 90, 93, the Murat gin, um, and the mics from that Murat set, um, on, on August 13th. And then the next night, the crazy antelope walk away. Um, mm-hmm. but th- nothing, quite like this and um so when it was the 25th anniversary of the bomb factory i wanted to write up a piece and i really wanted to include try to find something that was just more than me gushing over the um bomb over the tweezer fest and i happened across um in in doing some research uh, as as you mentioned an article for the san francisco examiner that came out less than uh a month after the bomb factory and and trey's quote was we just played dallas the other night and the last 65 minutes of the show were completely improvised it wasn't planned but it happened and we just took off if it wasn't for nights like that, I wouldn't be doing this. I'm not traveling eight months out of the year just to sit in hotel rooms. And I just thought that was brilliant and gives such great context to what went on that night. And uh, I'm glad we were able to uh, dig that out of the uh, ether. Yeah, it's it's interesting that like um, what you're saying now, Trey's quote about them kind of, you know, 
improving for the last 65 minutes and um, what you said earlier about the 94 versus 95 sound and some of the things that we've talked about on the show before the the difference being almost a level of maturity where in 94 they were just kind of pushing and trying to figure out how to play those long jams and um, just throwing everything at the wall including covers and teases and stuff just to put something together whereas in 95 they had the maturity to sort of figure out how to get to more melodic places um, as a group, not necessarily rely on the goofiness that they that they would in '94. Um, but then, with you know more intense listening, it kind of pays off a lot more. I know Jonathan, you're a huge fan of of Summer '95, so that's got to spark some thoughts for you. Yeah, I really am. But I, I would take it back further and say that you might call like the Roxy 93 to 2093 set to a precedent mm. for this. But it also, I think, feeds the narrative that you're laying out, Matt, of the uh, maturity. They're, they were kind of going in and out of things, but it was a lot more ADHD, uh, a lot more like hard turns into things, uh, a lot less of the kind of fluid jamming into things that we get here and even more so in 95, as you're saying. So I think, you know, there's, there's minor precedent. Uh, it's just, it's growing every time. It's a big, it is a definite milestone and a leap forward. Yeah. I mean, so I'm looking over my notes for the tweezer here and, you know, just among things that I hear here, you've got like um, the, the whole thing starts out with the vocal improvs. I think it's Fish saying what, what. And we, as we've said before, when Fish starts doing anything with his mouth during a jam, it usually winds up being pretty <laughs> amazing. Um, there's a, a blues section uh, that almost sounds like Jesus just left Chicago, a big black furry creature from Mars section, uh, something around 18 minutes that I called psycho bluegrass, um, followed by like a, a jam that sounds like it's almost off of side two of remain in light a couple of minutes later, um, a soaring peak that, you know, by about 22, 23 minutes in, if they had ended there, it would still be one of the best tweezers ever. And they keep yeah. going through a shoegaze jam that takes them into, into sparks. Um, there's a, the digital delay jam that when they come out of it sounds like uh, like a mid eighties King Crimson kind of thing, uh, a sweet emotion tease which kind of takes them back to the early days of Tweezer where they do that a lot. Back into Tweezer with Simpsons language, uh, there's almost there's a curtain tease from Mike. And they get into Cannonball there. You've got the goofy cover thing, and then you kind of get to Purple Rain, and then of course uh, back into Tweezer Prize later. I mean that's exhausting. Just, just saying it, um, <laughs> let alone listening to that crazy 65 minutes of music. Um, as you guys, did you guys do kind of a 25th anniversary re-listen of, of the jam recently? I did. And one thing that really stood out to me was the post uh, Purple Rain part of it. Thank you. 
after we were maybe 50 minutes into this and then they just hit the gas and hit this crazy peak uh, that was just like really after all that and that reminds me of the Albany M from uh, from from December 9th 1995 it was like after all the craziness after the shaft tease after the silent jam when they had brought the silent jam down to near silence then for just five or ten minutes they just slam as if it's this best straight fo- type one yem jam solo ever and it was kind of like that with tweezer it was like when they got back after all that time to the tweezer theme they just put the tray brought out the machine gun and uh you know and and it it was just incredible and that's the part that really stood out to me on release on re-listen mm-hmm I got lost re-listening to this. I actually tried to take notes, and then I, when I, <laughs> I transcribed them into our shared document, I had I laughed at myself because I think um, I wrote there's a lovely melody at eight forty five to nine minutes into the tweezer. That's something special, <laughs> and and then I stopped writing things and just listened and lost my place and lost you know everything. And so all I have after that is then things get pretty out there, and I think that's pretty much covers it. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a nice Cliff Notes version. Um, yeah, I mean when the only thing I think I could fault them for if you're going to if you're going to ding them for anything is um it would have been cool if they didn't completely drop out when they were going into back into the Twee Prize at the end. They have such crazy momentum heading into it and it seems like Fishman thought that they should sort of start Tweezer Reprise properly with just Trey instead of just going straight into it. But I mean, that's like the smallest of complaints given how amazing it is. The thing that I forgot about that I really, really loved when I re-listened to it is um, how they end the whole thing on a dime. They don't do a big drawn out chord rock star ending, which considering it's the end of the set and what they had just accomplished, you'd think that they would do. But instead, of it, it's like the ultimate fish might drop that they hit one note and just walk off stage it's unbelievable done that's it yeah (laughs) so all right so um we've talked about the bomb factory uh in the middle of the tour now we get towards the end of the spring tour uh which of course we're going to differentiate from the summer tour we'll talk about that separately um now they're out west uh they're in uh uh, northern california near monterey at the laguna seca days festival um they did two nights there, and uh, the first night, May 28th, 1994, um, is a great show, and it features uh, what I believe is the first of a few different guest spots uh, from Les Claypool of Primus, um, who they had definitely befriended, because as far as I could tell in, in looking up some uh, info about this festival, uh, I don't believe Primus was even on the bill, so Les must have just been hanging out. A sausage, his side project Sausage oh, was okay. playing. Okay. Um, and so there were a few rumors of that being a possibility that he might sit in beforehand. Uh, but but when it happened, I mean, I, relationships were forged that are still paying dividends today. Um, right. It's funny that this comes up uh, just a week ago. Mike and Les uh, shared the stage at a Claypool Lennon Delirium show um, in New Orleans. 
And it really all dates back to this amazing Yem Jam in 94. And there, it, it's one of a handful of times that Fish has used um, Yem as a showcase for a guest. Um, other ones that come to mind are the ARU uh, version from uh, May 5th. 1993 um, at, at the Palace in, in Albany um, when they had Boyd Tinsley come out um, on June 16th uh, 1995 in, at Walnut Creek and then of course uh, the Medeski Martin and Wood uh, craziness uh, from Fall 95 um, so it's not often that they use that song as a platform for craziness um, but it worked really well in, in this situation situation and uh really unusual yem jam and lots of time where it's just mike and uh less going off and one thing that i noticed in re-listening to the show recently was how good mike was playing and i can't help but think that knowing that less fucking claypool was on the side of the stage helped um give mike motivation to play as well as he played that night I, I think you're absolutely right. Had to be a motivator, a driver, if you will. Like, oh, this guy's out here and he's going to come onto this stage. I better, it's time. It's time to let's step this up hard. Um, another notable YEM with guests is the uh, that 97 led Transbordur, Transbordur show with uh, the Bela Fleck cats, Jeff Coffin and Bela and whatnot. That's the uh, Pierre from Hagendas show, if y'all yeah. remember. Great, great show. Um, this is a just terrific. Uh, it, it's weird to think of it as a festival set because it's it's you know it's two sets and it's reasonably uh, reasonably full. The stash in this first set, I think it's first set. Uh, yeah, uh, it gets just just a little outside the box um, and tickles my brain in just the right way. So I wanted to shout that out. Um, and then uh, also a tweezer. Trey gets a little machine gunny. Um, it is, I think, probably all about the YEM with Les Claypool, but some of this other stuff is also very, very worth listening to. Um, and I brought up the stash in particular because stash at this time frame, post Bomb Factory '94, is generally really good and weird. Yeah, um, they aren't all extremely long, but they get nice and dissonant, and they get good spaces in them, and it's. It's one of my favorite eras for that song.
May 94 might be the best month in Stash history. Yes. And um, I will also say that there was recently uh, the most recent episode of Under the Scales. Um, RJ and Tom talked about a number of songs, and one of the songs they talked about was Life Boy. And uh, RJ was talking about how much he loves when Tweezer lands on Life Boy. And it really is just so great when you've got a balls to the wall tweezer and then you have the landing pad of this beautiful song life boy and then comes reba and it's really it's a above average reba which is saying a lot especially for 1994 um and then you've got uh fee which is uh always a, a treat before the uh llama and and the claypool enjoys himself so I'll ask um, Jonathan as our resident, uh, not that we're not all Grateful Dead fans, but our resident Grateful Dead super fan. Um, I, I, I sometimes equate the tweezer life boy combination as fishes dark star into El Paso. How, how does that resonate with you? I think it's more not that I would knock a dark star El Paso from certain dates, but I think it's more of a dark star Stella Blue. Um, okay. Yeah. It's it's, right. it's a little more emotional. El Paso is not typically emotional, even though it's actually a very heavy song about death and dying. But um, no, I'm, I'm more Stella Blue on that one. Okay, I think that's fair. I think I was going more for like you're looking the, at Vanita, the, and I get it. The, well, the the big jam into um, something that almost seems like it doesn't fit against the big jam. Um, you know, Tweezer's more goofy, whereas like Dark Star is a little bit heavier, and then gets into El Paso, which you're kind of like, okay, where did this come from? And they did it a lot too, right? They did, but uh, I, I I totally get your analogy. I, I just think that the um, uh, the the landing pad of Life Boy out of Tweezer again. It's that balls to the wall craziness, yeah. as Scotty described it, and it that comes down into something um, beautiful. I think it's it's not only is it not incongruous. I think it's a perfect fit to come down into something like that. And uh, and Life Boy is it, it's it's a beautiful song. The lyric is you know it's outstanding and really you know speaks to kind of human desperation and and things that that we all feel at least some some of the time and that's where uh, a song like Stella Blue I think is a little closer to it than uh, El Paso but um, what do a I musical know? speed a musical speedball if you will <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean this this second set is is fantastic after a, a relatively straightforward especially for 94 first set um other than the you know typically amazing uh stash as you mentioned jonathan um the tweezer is fantastic uh it's a very 94 tweezer in that it's kind of all over the place lots of dissonance yelling um tension uh try as i mentioned before trying a lot of different things to see what sticks um and then into the life boy the um i really liked this reba uh second set reba which is a little bit odd um but but great placement for it it's got a little bit of a funky thing that happens um in the jam where they keep kind of modulating to minor and then back to the lydian space that they usually play in um a couple of different times uh i guess maybe some of the second set juice rubs off on this and it's a little bit more experimental than than reba tends to be um but then we get into this you enjoy myself that we we mentioned a 
couple times with with Les Claypool, and man, it's so good. I mean, like I almost want all of my yems to have two bass players on it. There was stuff at times, because I mean, two bass players- it's dangerous, if you, request. If you, if you think about it, two bass players can get messy. Um, if, you know, it's a very specific kind of sonic territory that they're you're usually occupying. And Mike and Les do such a great job of Mike really holding down the low end at times, letting Les play up higher on the neck um, in his kind of like manic slapping way. It almost reminded me at times of listening to like dumpster funk when they do the two base yeah. attack um how they they cool. execute that so well and manage to make two bases sound like they're not stepping on each other um and then i mean you know a lot of people would complain about it you enjoy myself without a guitar solo but you don't even need it here because you have less claypool taking you into such crazy places like dueling banjos and stuff i mean it gets so weird that they don't even do a vocal jam here I mean, it's, it's hey. just wild the bass is a guitar, after all. Come on.
would say in listening back, uh, two things that stuck out was, um, as you were saying, in terms of the two bases fitting in really well, Mike used his uh, Love Tone meatball envelope filter throughout the, the part with the two bases, which really helped the contrast between mm. Les's more trebly bass sound, if you will, and his signature um, riffing and Mike, uh, you know, having this wad out sound going on. It really helped. And the other thing is, is that I don't know if such a thing exists, but I sure would love to see a video of this. It was really hard to make out i think there's something lost in translation from a tape an audio tape of something like this i would really love to see what was going on on stage strong agree on that yeah. point right there i would i would i would pay real american dollars for that yes absolutely absolutely so that uh, so they played laguna seca the the next night um, and that's the end of the spring tour. They've got just, it's a very small break, um, before they pick up for the summer, uh, heading out to Utah and Red Rocks, uh, that we all know about. And we'll, we'll talk about in the future. I can't even imagine they went home. I mean, we're really talking about 10 days later. They're Re- yeah. 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 I mean, maybe they took a, you know, a small vacation and let the gear get there or something like that. But when you guys look back, um, just in general, you know, we looked at these three kind of pillars of spring, um, especially given what they would do with, for the remainder of the year, what are, what's your kind of overall impression of the, of the spring? Um, Jonathan, why don't we start with you? This is a great band growing greater. They, uh, as we said at the beginning of this, they, they come out, on top at the end of 93, even with the whole fall tour off, they've made a great record that we hadn't heard yet, you know, and they play the fire new year's run. And then they come out in April and just burst through the country. Um, this, this band is just, they're just exploding right there on stage. And it, it just continues through the year. I feel while I second certainly second everything um, that that Jonathan said, I feel like there's something special, at least one thing that's special and unique to each show on this tour, Um, whether it's um, an opera singer coming out and singing. uh, at the Warfield, where Merle Saunders coming out in Atlanta, or O'Teal jamming with the band Adam Mike's um, in Birmingham. Every one of these shows had something that would never happen again. Um, and that trend continued. I feel like that trend started um, in the summer of 1993. And it continued throughout um, throughout 94 and really especially in that July tour um, in the in the summer that that would follow this. I mean, all every single one of those July 94 shows has crazy shit that just never happened again. And uh, that this was it's incredible that they went from the Beacon to Madison Square Garden in the span of April 15th to December. December 30th. It really is. And, you know, this is the time frame where and when I finally started seeing this this band, I, I immediately said, well, I need to see a lot more of this band uh, when I saw them in the fall. And what I continued to say for the next uh, year or more was every time I saw this this band, they were better. 
than the last time. And going back through the tapes, that kind of holds up. That you know, the shows are all different, as you say, a lot of unique stuff happening, but they were just continually improving. And I guess living on the road for the most of the year really does that. Yeah, there's I think there's definitely a hunger throughout the year that you can see right out of the gate on this tour, um, you know, kind of riding the wave of energy from releasing Hoist. And, um, you know, as we talked about, really swinging for the fences and trying to make their mark. And uh, they didn't do it through traditional, you know, commercial radio and MTV success. Um, They certainly did it in the live show starting this year. So um, as we mentioned before, this is going to be our first look back in 1994. We'll kind of visit the other tours throughout the year in celebration of of the 25th anniversary. Um, Scott, we have to thank you for coming on and, and joining and sharing your thoughts. Um, and Jonathan, as always, it's great to, to chat about fish with you. And uh, we, uh, we thank you all for listening to, uh, to us talk about 1994. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, guys. And as RJ would say, if he were here, keep on. Well, you know. The snow fell last night. Your flight couldn't leave. Come back to the bed Let's take this reprieve It felt like the end The end's been delayed You're here in my arms Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.